Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Cameron, professor in the Department of Geography and Planning at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. In 2017, we began the Fireplace series, a series of interdisciplinary conversations, impromptu exchanges between two speakers from different areas of research. Each brings curiosity and generosity. Together, they explore common and uncommon ground. The fireplace conversation you are about to hear took place on the 2nd of November, 2018, between Dr. Barbara Crow, Dean of Arts and Science at Queen's University, and Dr. Dylan Robinson, the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Arts, also at Queen's. The topic of their talk together is Spaces and Places of Interdisciplinarity. The subtitle of the Fireplace series is An Interdisciplinary Conversation. And the conversation today is between Dr. Barbara Crow and Dr. Dylan Robinson. Given their research and their roles, we thought they would be ideal to help us address head-on this concept of interdisciplinarity. A term, as geographer Felicity Callard has said, is one that everyone invokes and no one understands. Dr. Crow was appointed Dean of Arts and Science in July 2017. She is responsible for overseeing the overall operations of the Faculty of Arts and Science, including developing and supporting the faculty's long and short-term goals, strategic initiatives, and academic priorities. Dr. Crow holds a PhD in sociology, and her research interests lie in the areas of feminism, aging, and technology the ways in which they intersect, and especially the various impacts of digital technology. In addition to her research, Dr. Crow is a co-founder of the Mobile Media Lab and of Why, a journal of mobile media. She is currently a co-principal investigator on the ACT Project for Aging Communication and Technologies. Her interlocutor, <laughs> Dr. Dylan Robinson, is a Huelmach artist and writer of Stalo descent. At Queen's University, he holds the Tier 2 Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Arts. His current work focuses on the return of Indigenous songs to communities who are prohibited by law to sing them as part of the Indian Act from 1882 to 1951. Along with Candace Hopkins, he is curator of the Soundings exhibition, and we've seen much evidence of this amazing exhibition that has been appearing around campus in preparation for it. He is also curator of the Kataraqui Festival of Indigenous Arts at the Isabel Bader Center for the Performing Arts in March 2019. A new monograph, Hungry Listening, is forthcoming in 2019 with Minnesota University Press. So, welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> so, thank you very much uh, for the introduction, and thank you everyone for being here today. I have some family and friends here, so it's very nice to have you here. Uh, and I also think that this is really important. Uh, I am, uh, Dylan and I just said that we'd each take a minute just talking a little bit about locating ourselves and our place and, and our interest in this. And I'm keenly interested in multidisciplinarity. And I think the Faculty of Arts and Science is an incredible place that has the fundamentals of much of the academy. And I'm very much interested in how can we work across between and within those uh, disciplines. 
Uh, so I'm very interested in uh, how, we, how we can do that and take up that space. So it's really nice to be here today as an intellectual and, and talking about my own research and the different approaches that I've taken over uh, three decades of being an academic and trying to engage in these difficult and rewarding and productive spaces of working across uh, disciplines and, and spaces. My own training, I have degrees in political science, women's studies, that's what it was called in 1984. Uh, sociology, and I have had cognate appointments for which I do not have a degree. So um, I've been somebody who has been very uh, committed to a certain set of intellectual questions and have been able to convey a commitment in the units that I've been in that this is, these are important questions and I'm somebody who can facilitate those kinds of things. The challenge has been uh, how do you move those in an administrative context? So it's a different set of skills, a different set of ideas, a different kind of way you have to work with your colleagues around uh, how to uh, think about how and, and do it. So one of the things that's very important for me today is to have an opportunity to share, and I think the Fireplace series is about having that intellectual space where we can cross boundaries and bring different disciplines and ask questions together. And then the question for me as an administrator is what's the infrastructure that you put in place to facilitate uh, that kind of way that we can have these fruitful, <laughs> productive places of tension in, in the meeting together. So I'll just say that and then we'll, we'll go into some of the discussions that we set up. So mm. thanks. I, I just noticed uh, in your, your short um, the discussion of where your degrees are from and in what disciplines. There's a lot of crossing that's going on there, and it reminds me of of my own degrees at uh, you know Simon Fraser in an interdisciplinary arts program. But then after that, having to find ways through that infrastructure mm -hmm. to continue that work that, that universities have historically not always been set up through the infra their infrastructure, through mm -hmm. programs and spaces to um, to allow for the kind of work that I think there's interest mm -hmm. in. Uh, but maybe not uh, necessarily having that structural support for. Mm -hmm. uh, so I actually went to the UK to do my PhD because I wanted to do a PhD in arts practice-based research. And in Canada at the time, there, was not, there, were, there weren't a lot of those kinds of programs in existence. Of course, our cultural studies program here now does allow for that, which is fantastic. Uh, but that kind of interdisciplinarity across the arts and across disciplines as well of bringing in researchers and artists to think together about um, you know, different questions and problems has been central uh, for myself in, in my training and what I, what I continue to do now. Uh, the, as Laura mentioned before, one of the things that you likely will have seen across campus these days are these large vinyl uh, works on the sides of buildings. And so we were wondering what those are all about because we don't have any didactic material up yet about them, but they are part of the Soundings exhibition, uh, which is primarily to think through how we um, challenge notions of, of space through sound and through, uh, through action, in Indigenous artists specifically in this case. So we have a number of these works situated up around campus now in advance of the official opening in January of the Soundings exhibition. Uh, and these works in various ways will be 
realized by other indigenous artists and non-indigenous performers coming into the university in outdoor spaces and indoor spaces to sound them, to make them, to bring them into action, to activate those spaces. And of course, one of the, you know, this, it's very interesting for me, this kind of corridor between Mac Corey, uh, Harrison Lacane Hall, Jeffrey Hall, this sort of strange empty space there, mm -hmm. right? That mm -hmm. I think we all walk through as we're trying to get to the other mm -hmm. buildings that we need to mm -hmm. do whatever we were scheduled to do in and think, what is this space about? <laughs> so for us, that was a kind of call as well to think through, um, yeah, what is this space about? What can we make this space about? How can we make it productive and an interdisciplinary space mm -hmm. of engagement uh, between, you know, indigenous um, practices of thinking, material practices of thinking, if we think about those works that are on the wall now. So I, I don't want to say too much about that right now. We're just doing a sort of brief introduction. But I have been thinking quite a lot about those um, outdoor spaces. One of my areas is public art, Indigenous public art. And so how we materialize our histories as Indigenous peoples within public space, how we engage with the public in public space, uh, so that they don't become these you know, strange empty corridors that we simply pass through as we're getting from one place to the next. Yeah, that's great. And I think that's what, uh, we have a real opportunity in, in the university right now. And I think it's a really privileged space that we have to yet interrogate, but also acknowledge what we can do with some of the spaces. So what's required in order to have the university take up uh, and do the kind of work that you're doing. So one of the things that Dylan and I were talking about in preparation for today was, well, last night Hayden King was here. <clears throat> and I thought Hayden gave a really good presentation on the iterations of reconciliation. And like, we're in reconciliation version six right now. Uh, and uh, a lot of the work, and I think Queens uh, produced probably one of the most comprehensive responses to the truth and reconciliation around the post-secondary sector. I've read about 20 different universities who have put different reports together. and. Uh, have put a lot of call to action and have done a lot of moves, but Dylan and I were just saying at some level, indigeneity and indigenous cultures and values are multi inherently multidisciplinary, right? So we're asking an indigenous base to come in that is multidisciplinary to come into an incredibly disciplinary site. So already we've, we're, we're having this tension around uh, something that's possible or could be open to us. And I was just thinking about what he was saying in terms of the latest iteration of reconciliation and what can we learn from the past, but what are some of the ways in which we're, we're uh, uh, not yet creating the spaces to understand that different uh, epistemological space in, in the university and, and the epistemology of our own university and how that it's it's, it's in, uh, knocking up to, mm -hmm. to each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, um, it's, a, it's a fairly frequent experience I have, and I think a lot of indigenous people, academics and artists have of, um, well, sometimes not feeling welcome in mm -hmm. these spaces, but also from a history of um, residential schools where, you know, um, horrible atrocities happen. There's a intergenerational trauma, uh, you know, trauma within our communities that is associated with these kinds mm -hmm. of spaces, with these buildings. And I, and I think about um, an experience I had uh, in Port Alberni where one of the survivors was talking about not being able to walk into certain spaces 
institutional spaces in general where she felt that something as simple as the sound of a door softly closing with a soft thud behind her um, just sent her into this state of panic. And it was really important for me to hear that because I, I thought, yeah, something as simple as the way a door closes. And in fact, it was very, it was strange for me because I, you know, I obviously did not go to residential school. Members of my um, extended family uh, did, but um, that experience that I didn't have but heard about, I was thinking about as I was here for the very first time, actually, four or five, no, more than that now, six years ago, I guess and had this experience of a very soft and conclusive thud of a door closing behind me and thinking, wow, actually I can, I can understand in a way how that, that, that simple thing can um, have a completely different feeling to someone that has this, mm -hmm. this experience. So, I mean, it's a, it's a way of saying these spaces are not designed. Our spaces that we think of as interdisciplinary spaces are not designed necessarily to be welcoming or have um, you know, this other layer of sensory experience that we might not think of in a daily way that I think needs to, needs to change. And so when we talk about spaces that are welcoming and spaces mm -hmm. that are safe for mm -hmm. Indigenous people and for the work that we do to take place, sometimes that does mean redesigning the very entrance to mm -hmm. the space that you're entering into, um, making that space a, a welcoming, a comfortable space like four directions mm -hmm. where where it's uh, it feels like you are there to to visit to share mm -hmm. to do a different kind of work to have a different kind of conversation and those conversations are everything that's where the work takes place mm -hmm. so i think this is really important to think about <clears throat> how these spaces how the spaces that we consider being productive interdisciplinary spaces in the sort of daily way of you know the scholars and artists doing our work might not be the right kind of spaces uh, mm -hmm. for, for Indigenous work to take place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think we have a lot of work to do around thinking about the, the, the physicality, the, the physical space too. I, I taught at Old Sun College, uh, mm. and at Old Sun they had converted a residential school into a community college, and they were trying to reclaim the residential school, and some of this, one of the students took me into the washrooms where she spoke about uh, the terrible physical uh, violence that she experienced in the, in the room. And I remember thinking, why are we in this space? Like, I wanted to burn the school down. <laughs> uh, so I had to think about why that was and, and about um, the work the community was doing to reclaim mm -hmm. that space, too, mm -hmm. about what, how, the place of learning and what kind of structure around that. It was mm -hmm. really powerful to mm -hmm. uh, be in that space. Mm -hmm. I, I, know, I know one of the other things that we have in common is a interest in thinking through intergenerational learning and how learning mm -hmm. takes place in the spaces mm -hmm. we are in mm -hmm. um, at you know, various levels, mm -hmm. ages, mm -hmm. uh, in between. So I wonder mm -hmm. if we might move sure. there now to so, um, uh, so I'm getting older. <laughs> so uh, it's interesting how your subjectivity <clears throat> and your experience, often for many of us who do intellectual work, that our work is shaped by those experiences. So I've been working for a long time on digital te technology and I, in the early 80s when computers came, I was very excited about the first FTP protocols and Kermit and transferring files. And I became uh, one of the few women in my community who knew about computers and was showing lots of women how to use computers. And then I taught uh, over a thousand women across the country how to code. Uh, and one of my friends asked me, 
uh, Barbara, you've been doing all this work. Why don't you write about it? And I thought, well, this is my political activist work. It wasn't a, an, an intellectual question or an academic. Anyway, so I've spent a lot of time, and I've subsequently done work on policy, and, and I work with, with engineers and designers on, on, on creating mobile media experiences. And as I taught, I taught two courses. I taught race and gender and digital technologies, and I taught resistance and subversion on the internet. And when I was looking at the content that I was using to teach, almost all of it, the quantitative data, almost all of it was about young people and their experiences with the technology. And I thought, well, hey, I don't, where am I in this, in this space? Uh, and it's interesting, because as a result of sort of seeing how your own discipline reproduce certain values about how intrinsic the binaries are of the young and the old and Western political thought, that here was communication studies continuing to participate uh, the valorization of youth of ahistoricism, of um, uh, um, uh, also, and, and that relationship to capital and political economy and who benefits from this kind of valorization and who the subjects are in this. And also the incredible um, values then that get imbued in young people that they have to be good at using these technologies, the space they had to occupy around that, and then as well, well, where were older people in that? I, I'm actually, because I teach in this area, I'm pretty fluent. I have to know how, what all the new apps are and all the new uh, platforms are. Uh, and where were, where were older people in, in all of this? And, and, and the kind of narratives that we're emerging in, commu in communication studies, the quantitative data then made me start questioning, well, what's communication theory? What's it premised on? What are the things that it's perpetuating? And who gets excluded? And, and what the exclusions mean around that? So uh, we started working. I've, one of the persons I work with is Kim Sawchuk, and her family members are, some of her family are here today. And we went to graduate school together. Uh, so it was interesting to have that kind of long-term friendship around doing that work. And so we started asking questions about, and Kim, actually, one of her first publications was on uh, aging and advertising, looking at older people and advertising. And so we just started saying, well, where is the research on older people? How do older people use these technologies? How are they doing it? And so we started with a small project, and we interviewed over 300 seniors across the country, from seniors living below the poverty line to seniors living uh, very comfortable, comfortably, you know, snowbirds, and asked them, and this was just when we were in transition around uh, cell phones, about their use of mobile media and what they were thinking, and it was incredible to hear uh, what their experiences were, why they weren't using it, what it was about, and there's a communication scholar in the States who's done a, uh, about um, what happens when you modify with something with new. And he took a person who was 80 years old and looked at every single new technology they've had, the transistor radio, the microwave, the television, the phone. The, and he said, you know, 80-year-olds have exp been exposed to at least 10 major new technologies. Yet how does this new function in a way that makes takes away that residual or not that way that we can acknowledge all the other technologies older people have engaged with? So we were interested in, in um, so what do older people have to say? And one of the things that 
I'll link back to you in a sec that we were talking about was one of the kind of most significant findings that we uh, that's come out of the group is how important intergenerational learning is and how important having the generations uh, that older people are working with their grandchildren to learn about it and often that's the space that gets them access that the group uh, we were talking about this my peer group controls children's access to technology we buy it we also give the older technology to our parents and this group in the middle that has this power nexus between the access between older and younger families and, and how we don't interrogate that middle group and some of the place of power they have in around that. So I've, we've been looking at kind of uh, how, to, how to deconstruct that, what makes available, and also to show that, that there really is a continuum uh, around our learning and technology, and what are the different ways that we can get out of these binaries of the new and the old uh, to, to look at, well, what kind of technologies do we need? Why do we want them? Uh, how are they useful? What are the ways that they can be adaptive and, and repurposed? And mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think just to pick up on that intergenerational learning um, aspect that you were talking about, you know, it's, it, it's about teaching uh, across, you know, it's not just having everyone in the same room so mm -hmm. that elders can cheat, teach mm -hmm. uh, children, but, you know, we learn as much from our children mm -hmm. as we do from our elders. And so having that, um, that it's a norm within our communities. Like, mm -hmm. this, is, this is how we do the work we do. Mm -hmm. And so, again, that's another disconnect sometimes in, in these spaces that, um, you know, prioritize, a, a, you know, uh, students sometimes coming directly out of out of university, not necessarily, you know, I think older students, I mean, the, again, the cultural studies program has quite a few mature mature students or people that are coming in with, that have careers already uh, into the program, but I think we could do a lot better in making our spaces intergenerational learning spaces, and I've, I've really been thinking about this, particularly in language learning uh, and revitalization, uh, because you know we have so we have many language nests. Indigenous peoples across the country are developing, have been developing language nests for a while. The concept of a language nest is that you do this intergenerational work, is sort of you're, you're all there to learn together, which is quite empowering in many ways uh, because you're all starting from the beginning. In, in well, you know, not everyone's at the beginning at the same time, but you're all sort of relearning uh, how to use your voices. Right? How, to, how to say those sounds uh, that you didn't grow up necessarily with. And so my own experience of learning Halkamalem for the first time, um, so I've been a Halkamalem language learner now for six years, and I'm still at the very beginning of it. It will be a lifelong uh, practice. But at the very uh, start of the work that I was doing, my mentor, Lum Lamalut, uh, Laura Wilelak, said to everyone in the class, all right, well, this is, this is actually part of a University of the Fraser Valley class, but we are holding it in our territory, in our space, and we are doing this um, in one way because it will be accessible to everyone that lives here. So bring in your aunties, your, uh, you know, your elders, your babies, bring everyone in, bring them in. You know, they haven't registered for this course, but bring them in. Uh, and for me, this was just an, an amazing thing because I, because I could then, uh, to my cousin, say, yeah, come on in, who, has had, who didn't graduate from high school, who had only horrible experiences of, of 
you know, learning, although uh, I think knowing his experiences, I would characterize them as less than that a lot of the time. And so for him to be able to step into this context where everyone is learning how to make sounds again, to pronounce things, to hiss like a cat, to say, you know, and just practice these sounds was so incredible and empowering for him. And he came out of that feeling like there was this space and there was this opportunity for him to succeed and, and do something um, that he had felt was he did not have access to before. So, I mean, as one, uh, you know, just as one area of intergenerational learning, I think that's really important because he's my age. Mm -hmm. And so he is in the sort of middle uh, area where we do have language nests and we do have elders that have fluency, but you know, in between my generation, my mother's generation, there's a gap, a very significant gap. So for him to be able to step in to, a, you know, to an academic context, but that where things were run quite differently, uh, you know, in, in our space, uh, it was really, really important. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, he just, you know, I still remember, he felt so proud of coming out of that, that learning situation, mm -hmm. being able to say a few words, mm -hmm. you know, being able to introduce himself very briefly. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's really important. And a challenge as well, I would say, because <clears throat> I don't think we can simply um, say, okay, well, let's do that. You know, mm -hmm. let's just bring everyone into our mm -hmm. classrooms. I, I don't think that that necessarily works in a lot of cases. We have to change those structures. Yeah. We have to change everything in a way if we're really going yeah. to, to do that. And how do you, how do you actually do that right. within an academic context well, where everything's based on fees and enrolling and, and this, right. right? So Well, even look at the structure of our timetable. You know, I mean, we, <laughs> right. we, we, we do everything. Like, I'm, I'm really surprised. We have a lot of opportunity to be way more flexible with our timetable than the way that we are to do modular, to do weekends, evenings, throughout the summer. Uh, even the way we structure the day here, I find really, I think we've got a lot of opportunity on how we could be more flexible. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, this is where what I think is you know, really challenging for us as, as institutions is this is the way we've done it, or like the timetable here at Queen's was set in, what, Tom, 1961? Uh, wow, that's just about as old as I am. Uh, and uh, yet, I mean, look at how much, even if you look at how Queen's has changed over time. Anyway, so I think that there's, we, have a, we do have a lot of different kinds of spaces we could access. Mm -hmm. Are ways in which we could change mm -hmm. and do things do things differently, but we bump up against size, uh, disciplinary, pedagogy, educational. This is the best way mm -hmm. to learn this kind of content and what. Mm -hmm. And it's that structural change that's so incredibly important. It's that infrastructure, mm -hmm. as you were saying mm -hmm. before, that that mm -hmm. needs to. Um, be changed. It's the harder change to make, mm -hmm. but without that, it becomes simply about uh, importing content that is then not supported mm -hmm. by the structures, mm -hmm. right? So we can, mm -hmm. I, I truly believe we can uh, change curriculum uh, as much as we want, hire Indigenous faculty and other um, uh, scholars of colour, but unless we actually think about the timetable, mm -hmm. unless we think about the building, mm -hmm. unless we think about the, you know, all of those foundations changing mm -hmm. at the same time, we're going to be um, not allowing the work, the change to take place right. in the fullest and, way possible. 
Yeah, and I, I think too around the disciplines. I, I, I think, you know, I, that, uh, you know, the budget model at some level facilitates the, the, the units. We've learned what the levers are to support certain kinds of things. So given that, how do we, you know, the budget should facilitate the academic mission, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, what are the different, you know, I think there are different possibilities for us around organizing our intellectual content, right? I, mm -hmm. That is the department, the, the unit that, that we need. I look at our curriculum and how students have to make their way through first to fourth year and they're forced into certain kinds of decisions and it's very difficult to take a business and engineering course outside of once you get into life sciences, you have to take all of these courses and we make it very difficult for students to get out of, uh, of those, those paths that we've, we've constructed and, and created. And I, you know, I, I'm really interested in looking at how can we build it, like knowledge of how do you access something in a one year, two year, three year, four year so that you can expand it and move forward and how could we design it or have a curriculum that allows you to move between uh, and, and bring these different uh, issues because as students say they want to be have a numerate literacy, they want to have uh, uh, access to you know project management, they want to have access to uh, poetry and and uh, um, music and and uh, physics, mm -hmm. you know? and from again from a well, I'll speak particularly from a Coast Salish and uh, Pacific Northwest First Nations perspective that the the work that we do, our our lawmaking, our um, you know medicine, our uh, historical documentation, you know, as you would think about a book, the you know the way that a book do documents history. All of that takes place through our cultural practices, through long housework, through songs and dances and, and oration, and uh, in, a, in a space that brings those together, right? And so uh, you've heard me talk before, and I quite often talk about the way in which our songs um, don't simply represent law, but do law. Right? And so it's a completely different orientation to how we think about the way that law is done from a Western perspective mm -hmm. uh, and, and really puts into question those disciplinary boundaries of law being the written or the, you know, the court-based mm -hmm. thing uh, rather than, um, and we have you know, great, great examples of this, uh, of uh, customary law being grappled with in the courts mm -hmm. uh, because the legitimacy of song isn't understood mm -hmm. as a way of demonstrating a land claim. Mm -hmm. So I think that, that absolutely, we, we, it's not just about thinking of, of interdisciplinarity as a way of innovating, but interdisciplinarity as a way of uh, making, giving legitimacy to other mm -hmm. uh, epistemological mm -hmm. and um, ontological uh, ways of of um, of being. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. No. Okay. All right. Well, now that we agree. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Here comes the disagreement part. <laughs> so, so you know, it, it, how do we do it in this structure, right? So, I, I see a, a number of different ways that we can do it. I mean, I think discussions like this are really important to convey to the community that there's an intellectual element, right, of, mm -hmm. of, of this and why it, it, it's important. Uh, and then it's about how do we move, uh, how do we, and then I also think that some of the work 
to be talking to my colleagues about, well, what, what, what are the affordances of multidisciplinarity? And in particular, given that the way the university's engaging with indigenous and indigeneity, how are we taking those, uh, that multidisciplinary, as I said, that different epistemological uh, space into, into, our, into the academy? Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know more about some, you know, some of and and whatever you're comfortable to speak about the sort of sure. visions uh, for, uh, you know, we're talking about the on the ground development sure. of, of these kinds of spaces, uh, and it takes it's one of the most challenging things to do at a university mm-hmm. uh, to build that infrastructure to make that happen. Yes, it is. <laughs> so here, here's some things that I think are really important. You know, universities have been around for 1,400 years. It's, they're one of the longest standing institutions in the Western world. And I would argue one of the reasons they have stood the test of time has been because of collegial governance. I think collegial governance is central to uh, what has sustained universities. And, you know, we're seeing real challenges in collegial governance in, at Canadian universities right now. Uh, and I would, there are many, many positions about why that's changed. I think technology, I think digital technology has changed collegial governance. Our colleagues are working from laptops. Uh, we're, we're doing less face-to-face interactions. Our colleagues are feeling, feeling overwhelmed by 24 access, uh, by email, and, and how, to, how to differentiate. Students feel they sh- can and should access uh, their their instructors in in, in 24 hours, and it, it's had an impact on on um, I, I I think I would actually argue I think there are real space place matters for faculty right now as we negotiate between the ephemeral and the and the physical, and I don't think that as a, a collegium we've reflected on the impact and changes that technology have made on the place of our of our academic labor. So that's something that I think is really important, and I'd like to see us have different kinds of discussions about that. I think the kind of spaces we occupy play a huge role. Um, what what we make available, like Court Macquarie Hall, I think the dean's office should be there. I think that everybody should see the dean's office and have access to the institutional leadership and see us coming and going and what we're doing and what that space like. It should be a space that's open that you can come to and use and have available to you. Uh, I think that there are things that we can do around how we organize our units. I think the infrastructure that we have reproduces a certain kind of disciplining and way that we do things. Um, I'd love to see a unit volunteer as a way or to work across with some others about here's some other ways that we can organize ourselves and the different infrastructure that we can have. I think our timetable, I think the way that we organize our curriculum and our structure. So what I see us doing is that we're additive and we don't take anything away. I, I think, you know, for example, and now I'm really going, I'm going to stop. <laughs> but the other thing, uh, when you look at structural barriers, I look at majors, minors, medial, concentrators. We have 1,200 programs. Some students can get in. So at some level, there's this incredible plethora. And another level, it's really difficult to access all those pathways. So we've made it very complex and very difficult. So what are some of the ways that we make it easier to move around, but that requires faculty and students to want to have access and work in those kinds of ways. So what are the things that we do to, 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 to uh, have those conversations? So part of what we're doing right now is invoking on a strategic plan so that we can get some of these ideas out there, a vision, and 
and strategies and how do we do that and have some common understanding and goals around this is what we're doing and, and this is what will make happen. But those are some things. Mm -hmm. You're mentioning uh, you know, a really concrete example of, you know, you said you'd like for the um, uh, Dean's office to be in Matt Coria, mm -hmm. but, but it makes me think about the kind of uh, lack of outward facingness of what we do. I mean, mm -hmm. we, we talk about the ivory tower and mm -hmm. literally often we're in these buildings that are disconnected mm -hmm. that are actually mm -hmm. kind of like ivory towers physically, mm -hmm. right? Closed off brutalist architecture made mm -hmm. of concrete that you can't, mm -hmm. uh, you have no windows in or this, mm -hmm. this kind of thing. And I think what a, what a strange um, structure for um, but that, that, that actually disallows knowledge sharing, but also the potential there to think through um, what one of my colleagues, Heather Castleton, uh, a CRC uh, in geography, is, is, has introduced me to is a sort of living lab. Mm -hmm. So this concept of what, what happens when you think about the work that you do being outward facing, Right, that you you um, you open out to the rest of your colleagues and and disciplines, uh, both in the physicalization of that space, but also in say the uh, you know screen-based media that you mm -hmm. can actually put up the work mm -hmm. that you are doing uh, in a visual form, in a sonic form, in in many kinds of ways mm -hmm. uh, within the spaces or even on the exteriors of mm -hmm. the spaces that that then demonstrate and. Um, maybe less demonstrate, but, but sort of offer an opportunity for engagement uh, and, and show what's going on, what's mm -hmm. going on within this, uh, this tower, this, mm -hmm. this building, this, this space. And I think, yeah, in the, in the redesign of, of our universities that um, I think simply needs to happen as part of renewal and has been happening because our buildings are, are needing, uh, you know, some, some structural maintenance sometimes, we may end up needing to think, <laughs> well, I was talking about Matt Corey. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I know, I know. Um, I think what an opportunity to actually bring together uh, these these ideas of living lab to redesign what we do and not just have a connection there between other disciplines that are that are separated, but with the public, right? Because that, that again is a major divide in in that we we we, stri we strive to work on, but I don't think we actually do a very good job in terms of the the again the spaces and the structures that we work within. Um, and, and yeah, especially if, if you think about the, the push towards technology and even the money mm -hmm. and access for technology, we, the, these are things I, I think actually about the project that is in Montreal. I don't know the title of it. It's um, maybe someone can help me. Cité, it's a film, Cité Memoir. So it's a, um, it's a project where they have filled our, their walls, buildings, exteriors with projections of, of history and new uh, film works and made the city come alive in this way that also talks about the histories and what's going on within the city, within these buildings and, and what is uh, elided sometimes by the, the history that's elided by buildings being there. And I think, yeah, what a great model for the university as well to actually uh, communicate in this mm -hmm. way, um, in this very different way. Uh, histories of this place, the work that we're all doing, um, it's pretty, pretty inspiring to me. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, think, I just think about that, those forms of connection, how we can become more, uh, more like or work with this concept of the living lab. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's really important and uh, 
recently um, some colleagues and I from Tom, our provost mentioned that we do this, that um, taking some colleagues to go look at what buildings have happened on other campuses to inspire our colleagues here about how we could uh, look at, you know, our, our STEM and do STEAM and have labs that all of us have access to and can work and, and meet in against as opposed to having the labs here. Uh, um, they recently, uh, uh, there's been some interesting work at Queen's with the animal research where they've created uh, labs that you can move that are designed more by function, not by who owns the research questions. Mm -hmm. But what are the tools you need to do the work? Uh, and how to do that in an ethical and caring way. And I think that that's would be really, how can we have these kinds of spaces? Mm -hmm. Can we create these kinds of spaces that allow for, for this? And, and mm -hmm. that requires, uh, so we can see how that space, but it's not only just having the space, it's also the mindsets that we have at the institution mm -hmm. about who, where. And I always, I'm, I'm a big believer that you work with the champions and get them. <laughs> going and seeing how the space and then do the other. But some of the things that we're saying will, are, are, will be very cha much challenged uh, at, the, at, at our institution. I think it's hard too. If you, if you have um, my, you know, a lot of my training, despite doing an arts-based PhD and, and master's degree and then postdocs that, that I'll continue that, still a lot of my training is with the written word, with publishing, mm -hmm. with the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, and these forms, and uh, even much more so for um, other colleagues that I have in different disciplines. Um, Lisa Gunther and I were talking about philosophy and the ways in which uh, we, were, we were trying to think through this concept of what site-specific philosophy would be. What would a philosophy on the ground engaging with sites in, in community uh, end up being and looking like? Uh, and, and we were saying that that model is so, you know, foreign mm -hmm. uh, when, when we are so grounded within doing what we do uh, as, a, as a textual practice, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so I imagine that that, that kind of change that I'm talking about of, the, of a living lab would, be, would, would involve a lot of time, right, mm -hmm. to sort of think through. I mean, you can't just suddenly say, uh, yes, I'm going to do this thing mm -hmm. and it's going to be mm -hmm. exceptionally uh, good uh, without the kind of mm -hmm. uh, attendance to the craft mm -hmm. and the time and the learning of the skills to do that thing. So the retooling, to use that mm -hmm. phrase, um, or the, the rethinking of how we do the work we do in, the, in a different interdisciplinary way, um, could involve a pretty should involve a significant time commitment, so that we are um, practicing that craft in the same way that we have learned to practice the craft of, of mm -hmm. writing and, and publication. So, so there are yeah significant time um, challenges I think involved in doing this. Yeah, and and again cultural shifts. I, I think a lot of the PhD the PhD training has trained dramatically that we have community uh, partner art based uh, creation research creation. PhDs and uh, and how are we engaged in this PhD training in PhD work and then how do, how are we open for it as an academy to hire these individuals who we've trained in these in these mm -hmm. multidisciplinary kinds of ways right so the the grad population the postdocs are there and actually we're we're participating in it and then how do we create the pathways for these individuals and to acknowledge the different, the multi-disciplinary uh, perspectives they have on, on the research. Mm -hmm. I think that's important too. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah, and, and I think um, part of that can be done through 
I mean, should be done through uh, the renewal of a hiring a process mm -hmm. to invite people in with those different um, skills and ways of uh, disseminating their research, research creation, whatever that might be, working with communities. Mm -hmm. All of these things need to be part of the the, the rich context mm -hmm. of how we do the work um, across mm -hmm. disciplines. But I think also there are smaller ways to bring people in for workshops, to work with mm -hmm. faculty that are already mm -hmm. here, to, you know, to so it doesn't become only about uh, yeah. a, a sort of... Um, need to do this at the, at the faculty renewal level, but but bringing people in with that knowledge to engage with mm -hmm. um, uh, those of us that do work in a very different way, mm -hmm. even from the science. I would love I would love to have a, a workshop process where I was involved with uh, you know I, I can't even think of a concrete example at the moment, but uh, to think through what this might be right to dedicate time right. uh, in, well in like in mm -hmm. this way, but but through a workshop in a su somewhat sustained mm -hmm. way where we could. Mm -hmm test out ideas, mm -hmm. right? I'm really inspired by this model of a speculative practice mm -hmm. of, of learning uh, cross-disciplinarily. Yeah, no, mm -hmm. I, I think it'd be great. We can have a speculative lab. Oh, yes, that's what we should do. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. Okay, we're Let's done. Do <laughs> All right. So I think that would be a good place. Who wants to be part of the speculative lab? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, Thank you so much for speaking with us on matters that are so important to all of us here. At this point, I'd like to invite people to come up and bring your ideas to the conversation. Hi, uh, I'm Claudia. Um, I thought that this was really a, a great conversation, um, particularly when we were speaking about epistemological and ontological spaces. Because for me, in my undergrad, it was very much applied, looking at policy. How can we fix things? How can we change things? And then I did a gender studies master's, which practically just changed my world. I couldn't watch adverts anymore in the same way. <laughs> Everything, like, why is she standing next to the washing machine? Um, <laughs> And, and I just became critical of, of everything, and, and I thought through things fundamentally differently. Mm -hmm. uh, so for me, the question then became about how are we enabling students to think more philosophically earlier, uh, to, to be critical earlier, because it, it just it changed my world. I'd never heard of who Foucault was, and then he came in, and now obviously there's a whole question now about how some thinkers are bigger than other thinkers and whether those thinkers are being given too much thought space. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about how we can make more, not just speculative labs in terms of doing, but like you say, in terms of thinking, mm -hmm. to actually talk about the theories, to talk about the ideas, not necessarily to be prescriptive, but to be challenged in ways we'd never thought were imaginable. So. Mm -hmm. um, and to, to maybe have students lead that, to have reading groups where students are sitting in these spaces, bringing in articles that they find interesting and are pushing one another without feeling the need to be overly polite, um, which maybe I'm, yeah, anyway. Um, so I'd, I'd love a, an extra comment on how we could potentially expand epistemological spaces uh, and then how that connects to a kind of Fordism of knowledge I think that there is, like you say, a Fordism of knowledge. And one of the, the things, I'm brand new to Queens, and for me being in Laura's class was amazing because almost every, every class we're going to one of these different buildings. We're setting foot in a different building. We've had a conversation with someone in a lab. We've had a conversation with someone in archives. So maybe that should be something that's, that's considered, not just in orientation week, but in the implementation of courses. Um, so yeah, just some thoughts. Thank you. 
Well, those are all good ideas. <laughs> yes, yes. You You're going to join us in the lab. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think um, I think it would be great. I would. I, I was thinking back to my own undergraduate degree, and and what if there was a course that was just open to any student, you know, um, mm -hmm. uh, on a topic of, of you know Foucault and science or whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, radically interdisciplinary that, that um, allows students to think about uh, interdisciplinarity as mm -hmm. well, right? Mm -hmm. I think, and I'm, maybe there are courses, you know, I, I would love to hear about courses that are, do we have any courses like that in the Faculty of Arts and Science that mm -hmm. are, say, yeah, mm -hmm. op open up at that level? Or, or even, uh, I think particularly at sort of senior level of like I, third and fourth year that Yeah, are, I think within the disciplines there are courses that are, that are opened up for sure. Um, I mean, you put a lot of ideas out there about how we how we can do that, and I, I do think the university is an amazing site for doing what what you've talked about. It's precisely your university degree that did, and you're being at the university that opened and created those shifts, right? So we know we have enormous potential in this site to to do that, and now it's just talking about how how can it, how can we do it in a more uh, in a bigger way, a wider, across. I, I do think the 21st century requires uh, work, us working across the, the faculties and our boundaries and, and borders. And, and so how, how can we take a leadership role? And I would argue that some of our structures are inhibiting us from doing that. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jonathan Rose. Um, thanks for a really interesting talk. Uh, and as you were talking, I kept thinking of Jane Jacobs, one of my mm. favorite quotes of Jane Jacobs, and that is, um, the way things look and the way they work are inextricably linked. And uh, she wrote that in the preface of The Life and Death of Great American Cities. Um, and I was listening to the conversation about the biggest obstacle to interdisciplinarity being perhaps culture, perhaps our attitudes, but I keep coming back to the physical space. Mm -hmm. And um, I wonder if I'm over-determining that variable as the kind of the biggest impediment to interdisciplinary teaching. Um, Barbara mentioned that university governance has been around for 1,400 years and has largely remained the same. And when she said that, I thought, well, university teaching has largely remained the same as well. Mm -hmm. And I think if we were really to engage in interdisciplinary education and thought, we need to think about how we engage ideas with students mm -hmm. and whether the physical space is adequate for that. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts. Yeah. Uh, so I, I agree. I think there, and we've heard Dylan talk about spaces he's occupied and the different kind of learning that can happen. I, I, I do think that we need different spaces in, in the university. And I do think that the, the structures that we have, the departments being on one floor, the buildings that we have, make it difficult for us to, to move. And, and the infrastructure that we have makes it difficult. So if we want to talk about doing it in a different kind of way, but then who, how does this affect the staff? How does it affect our curriculum that's set in this way? How does it affect my teaching load? So there's all of this other apparatus that actually reinforces a particular vision and way for us, right? So, it's, so how can we undo little parts? Or how do you use the pilot project as a way for people to see, oh, that's possible. We could think about it or do it in that kind of way. But, agreed. 
Yeah, I, <clears throat> this is a, a question I, I really struggle with um, because most, most of the spaces that are considered flexible teaching spaces, which are wonderful spaces for, for more flexible <laughs> teaching to happen, are still pretty institutional um, and uh, don't really, I think, get at what is needed next in thinking concretely about what kind of uh, ceilings and floors and walls and chairs and those very material things uh, yeah. of, a, of a living lab or studio or um, longhouse space, what, what these things afford and preclude um, learning and interdisciplinary engagement. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we don't, I, I don't think we think uh, concretely enough about the materiality of space. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, we've, we've thought about the, the kind of access that the more flexible seating can be, the more, you know, small group, large group conversations, and that's part of it. Um, but I, I just feel like we need to, and I'm struggling a little bit with like, maybe even the concrete ways about like how that needs to change, but I, but I think it comes from identifying, um, or I guess an ideal would be, well, what is the thing that we are, what are the things, the disciplines, the sort of ideas that we're bringing together? And then what is the kind of space that we need to design in order to allow those things to come together in new and innovative ways? I mean, that's the kind of granularity I would like to see, but, but, to, but to talk about how to do that within uh, you know, uh, these kinds of spaces that are really kind of, um, you know, sharply defined uh, is, a, is a major challenge for me. Um, so, so this isn't really answering the question, I think, but, but, I, but I think that, that it needs to come. I would like to see a space that is able to accommodate that kind of granularity, um, you know, in, in, in the way it's designed to, to allow instructors to come in, professors to come in, students to come in, and, and make that space the most conducive space to the particularities of, of the things that are being brought together. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to talk about the project that you and the project Lisa and, the, Yeah, and, sure, and, sure. Uh, Heather yeah. are working on right now? Yeah, so I'm working on a, um, what's becoming quite a long-term project right now with Lisa Gunther, um, who has a, a, a Queen's National Scholar in Critical Prison Studies, I think is the correct title, and Heather Castleden, uh, who is a um, scholar in um, health sciences and geography, who works with indigenous communities and does community-based research. And what we're doing right now is to think through these questions of, um, with the, uh, you know, about space and about working with um, formerly incarcerated people and indigenous people uh, within a space that would accommodate different ways of, of learning, indigenous ways of learning and welcoming space that sort of brings community together to address um, histories uh, in a way, you know, the histories of incarceration here in Kingston, for example, you know, the former prison for women, um, the, uh, you know, Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe history in this place that would try and be within a space that allows for these um, conversations to take place um, in the fullest way possible. And for partially that, that is needing to be done in a space that promotes uh, visiting and conversation, you know, uh, through, um, you know, uh, 
uh, I'm trying to avoid saying safe space, but really it is about a space that welcomes in and that allows us to feel not watched or surveilled, because I think university spaces end up becoming that, whether they are intended to be that way or not for Indigenous people and um, people who have a very different relationship with institutions, I should say. That would be a, maybe a better way of putting it. So how do you design that, that sort of space that, um, that welcomes different kinds of conversations, that is about gathering as research, that is about community-led research, that is um, you know, not against the institution, but other too, in a way, to the institution in the formal design? Of, of the space, and so this is a project that we're working on right now. Again, I briefly referred mm -hmm. to, um, and it's Lisa's um, idea of site-specific philosophy, philosophy that responds to place and space. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think she's by any means the only person that's that's talked about this. But um, you know, how do we how do we make again getting back to that idea of granularity? How do we make the the focus of this? Um, the things that are being brought together reflected in the in the development of the space. So we're trying to do that right now through designing, through uh, a space, through applying for uh, grant applications to fund the creation of this space. Yeah. It's a, but but again, you know, when we talk about the 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 impediments to mm -hmm. changing space, one of them is mm -hmm. the fact that in order to do something like this. Uh, involves an important amount of, of time and planning mm -hmm. and um, you know the project if and when it is realized will probably be another three or four years down the road mm -hmm. so yeah and the encounter the friction with the uh, funding agencies yeah. the, the 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 labor like learning the institutional languages to to uh, you know fit that in mm -hmm. uh, so that's some of the things that we've been talking about like I get it. I think it's a great project, and negotiating your way through the the institutions, uh, our funding bodies, how they work, the mm -hmm. values, and it's one of the one of the particular challenges is the fact that there is. Um I believe, I'll just put it that way, <laughs> that there's some uh, bias around, um, uh, you know, a lot, of these, a lot of these larger grants come through the sciences, health sciences, mm -hmm. different kind of research, and yeah. so when you end up talking about indigenous practices of gathering, there's mm -hmm. a way in which uh, that is, um, there's a non-recognition, I think, of that yeah. sometimes as, as, as having a legitimacy, so, yeah. so it is a challenge. It is <laughs> a challenge, and I think it's a really important one, because it's when we get at that and change that and the organizing. Anyway, I, I know it's hard work being on the other side, and, but I also see what the potential is. And when you have advocates working in the different parts of the system, like the Vulnerable Media Labs got CFI funding, very uh, outside the, the box for CFI. But anyway, that's a whole other. But anyway, there's different ways of working. So, Tom. Yes, uh, thank you very much for the conversation. My name is Tom Harris. And my question is directed to uh, Professor Robinson. And uh, ancillary to this, but in your role as an Indigenous scholar, that's mm -hmm. a question like that. So uh, last night we heard a, uh, a presentation by uh, Hayden King on uh, the fifth stage of reconciliation. Um, if you read a book by um, uh, Thomas King on the Inconvenient Indian, you can establish pretty much the same repetitive history. Mm -hmm. Starts off mm -hmm. with intentions. After a while, when the white population realize they're going to have to relinquish something, they stop, and then uh, there's activism, and they start, and they stop, and then there's a sort of a five-year period, um, or 25-year period that goes along like that. Um, 
what I would say is different in this start of a new reconciliation is um, there's been an adoption and an embrace in universities and other institutions around the importance of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. So Queen's probably snoozed through the last four, (laughs) but not this time. Mm -hmm. And so my question to you is uh, is that uh, there's a great effort inside of Queen's and other institutions as well to, to, uh, to try and address issues of reconciliation. But how do we actually not just uh, uh, change inside the institution, but how do we change the institution of Canada mm. to reconciliation from our position as educators? That's an enormous question. <laughs> <laughs> and ultimately, I think we all want yeah, our I mean, work well, in a way, to have uh, impact. Outside yeah, of our yeah, and in a way, I think that's what, what um, many Indigenous scholars and artists are working to, to mm-hmm. do, um, not necessarily articulated uh, in that lofty way of changing Canada, but changing the foundations and the structures that um, do not allow, that do not give legitimacy to our practices of, of law and, um, you know, his, history telling and, and these things, and enable our youth to uh, come up and, um, and do the work that um, they want to do within and outside of the university. I mean, those structures have a um, ripple effect, I think, that the structures that we change here become precedents for change elsewhere, mm-hmm. I would say, a lot of the time. Um, I was trying to think about the sort of the changing. So I would say one of the one of the challenges I have right now around um, decolonization or indigenization within universities, and I would say the same holds for for Queens, although I'm I'm hopeful, is the fact that um, it is it's it's um, an easier thing in a way to bring in content to do that and sort of do that uh, in a timely way without thinking about the long term. Uh, process of change that needs to happen, the commitment that continues on, and so I would like to see that commitment continue on, particularly, and I'm not talking about Queen's in this instance, but other universities have have jumped to implementing uh, recommendations, I think in some instances, maybe a little too quickly. Uh, you know, large hiring that takes place uh, to, as a demonstration in certain cases of that change happening, and I think a sustained, careful, thoughtful, and still timely process, you know, that, that is ongoing needs to be um, something that we consider. Uh, so again, that it doesn't become a checkbox, that it doesn't be, become, yes, we've made change, we've done that thing, now we're moving on to the next thing, uh, but that it is, um, you know, careful and sustained and responsive to, um, to things as they change, right? The, the things that we need right now are not the things that we will need in five years, right? In terms of indigenization, decolonization, uh, and supporting indigenous scholarship and, and practice. So again, that sustained approach I think is really key for me. Um, and I think, I am hopeful, I am hopeful, and I see that those the, these, the, the ripples outward of, um, Structural change is beginning to have impact, so I would agree that this is this is different. Uh, I would not, in any way, say this is you know uh, the the final perfect instance of reconciliation, right? And and I also think sometimes um, 
So in some of the work that I do, I have considered the need for work to be done separately and differently. So there's a work that needs to happen here for um, non-Indigenous settlers, uh, students um, in learning, in coming to an awareness of Indigenous history that is a different work than Indigenous uh, students and scholars need to be doing in resurgence and thinking about the, the support of um, language you know, redevelopment and revitalization. So these are different kinds of work and I think those need to proceed um, in, in those different paths. You know, Hayden brought up the two-row wampum. Those are, those are different paths and so uh, sometimes it is necessary, I think, to say, well, not everything can be about uh, an interdisciplinary coming together of everyone at the same time. We, we, may, we do need to have uh, that, that sort of those different paths honored. So that's a kind of dog trail around your question. I think it's an enormous question. <laughs> I would love to hear uh, if Barbara had any, any thoughts about it. Yeah, no, I, I think that the, uh, we, I, I agree, we, we've done, I, I feel for the indigenous community right now that, that there's enormous pressure around hiring and competition and um, putting our indigenous scholars in a place where the commodification um, mm -hmm. Uh, and how to get out of that that space, but how do we, which is said, how do we create pathways and how do we uh, open up the academy and our high schools and our primary schools for, for following the pathways into the, into the post-secondary sector? What does the post-secondary sector look like that makes it inviting for Indigenous students to want to go there? What are the, what are the ways in which we, um, uh, like we're looking at our curriculum, what, what does that look like? Our colleagues, the pushback we get from our colleagues and how do we, where's the leadership coming uh, from, from, from that? So we have, there's lots that we, that's iterative, lots that uh, we think is the, the way we should go and find out, whoa, what did we just do there and, and how to do that? But there needs to be a consciousness and a, and a commitment within the institution to this uh, from the top to the bottom. Mm -hmm. It needs to and be shared across the institution. It, it won't happen if there's, uh, I do think we have to keep reflecting back on what have we done, how have we done it, what have we learned, how do we, how do we change it? Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Hi, um, I'm Isabelle Saint-Amand. Uh, thank you very much for your talk. It really addresses the difficult uh, difficult things that need to be done. Um, I had a question more about uh, the question of multidisciplinarity. Um, everything I've done in academia is multidisciplinary, so I, it's something I do all the time, but at the same time, I think I greatly appreciate it and I very much benefited from disciplinary work done in different mm -hmm. disciplines. And so um, my question, I guess, to put it just bluntly like this is, what, is, uh, what do you need to do to keep the multidisciplinary conversation going? And how do you do not end up with something that is monodisciplinary? Mm -hmm. And uh, in another level also, um, I don't know if we you would uh, think of, uh, you just mentioned about uh, the two wampums and different uh, needs and uh, plans for different ways of uh, so educating uh, settler students and the work that uh, indigenous students have been doing. So if you would you see that uh, to think of indigenous studies as a discipline and how would you uh, situate that in a multidisciplinary conversation? 
And also, a last thing also would be, if you think of the disciplines, for instance, of philosophy, English, politics, of course, like, like we've discussed, there is a need to change the values that are passed down in those disciplines. So how do you do work that is, can be discipline-specific, change those disciplines, and at the same time interact with other disciplines by keeping the multi-possible? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which is, this is my, my question. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, I can say I, I really think what's really important is depth, right? and breadth, right? So you want to have a space where, or intellectual way in which you can go deep and have that, that, that very focused understanding. And I don't think multidisciplinary precludes depth and, and breadth. So how do we create the conditions for that depth? And, and, and multidisciplinary is about that, that breadth, right? And I, I think multidisciplinary can have depth and and breath, I don't think it's just a particular area that has ownership on that particular methodological and theoretical um, stance. So that's mm -hmm. what's important to me is where's the, how do we do depth and how do we do breadth together? Mm -hmm. Thank you for, for bringing up the kind of disciplinary, um, well, the depth of, of mm -hmm. that knowledge mm -hmm. and the expertise. And I, I would say that it's, I think I feel like it's essential for Indigenous scholarship to be within disciplines um, as part of that um, conversation within the discipline, right? It's um, in a way that is interdisciplinary in itself, like a disciplinary mm -hmm. interdisciplinarity when we think about different epistemologies and, and ontologies of knowledge systems in relationship, right? Um, I think of it that way, right? So, so again, you know, we, we think of, when we think of uh, philosophy or like this, this thing, we, we give it, we reify it in a way, I think that, that orients it more towards a Western conception of what that is. But when I think about a discipline or the ideal of a discipline, I see that as being actually uh, perspectives that are, um, you know, housed within this discipline that are not all adhering to that you know singular or that that reified sense of what it what it should be and so already a kind of interdisciplinary scholarship happening within the discipline but I, so i think um indigenous scholarship within that you know is is really really important um but then you talk about you were asking about the field of indigenous studies um i think uh, you know, there is another way in which there's that depth of work that's happened within Indigenous scholarship, uh, and we can consider that as a time immemorial practice as well, right? So the, the history of Indigenous knowledge sharing and how that's happened within our communities, uh, our communities across Canada, which are so very different, right? I, I try and ground what I say within a, um, you know, Stalo-specific or Coast Salish and Pacific Northwest Nation-specific model of how we understand um, song enacting law, right? But but there are there are similar ways that, that takes place in Haudenosaunee communities, or or parallel ways, or you know that that need to also be brought into relationship together, right? So I can I can envision a, even say a course on indigenous law that is only about that is an interdisciplinary course that is only about uh, indigenous versions of. Of law, and we have just as much difference between our nations and communities um, as as there is sort of interdisciplinary difference. I, I think within a university context. So, yeah, that's what I want to say. It doesn't really address everything that you yeah. asked, but 
But I'm also thinking too, we have seen the disciplines respond to multidisciplinarity, right? So we've seen sociology now, we have women's studies, urban studies, Jewish studies. All of this is about the splintering from, you know, this uh, space of sociology, which I would argue all of those things are sociological. But in order to create, a, you know, a, when a subjectivity emerges, they create a new, here's a new discipline we're creating to look at this, this right? When we, so we've seen this kind of splintering happening in the disciplines and, and, and uh, shifting too. So now we're, we're beginning to see people go, well, do we, do we need sociology? Like, what is, what is, what is that now? Because there's no, it's all splintered into all these different subjectivities. And, uh, and, and I think we're seeing the disciplines like being challenged by that. Okay, mm -hmm. hey, hi. Hi. <clears throat> so Julian from the French department. Uh, I think it was about time that someone pulls out the it's, it's more a comment than a question. So that's, that's, <laughs> that, was, that was about time. Uh, well, all the things you said about redesigning spaces for learning. Well, I think it applies mostly to research and graduate studies. And the thing is, most of my job and most of everybody's job is teaching to larger groups, which is part of the democratic mission of university. We mm -hmm. teach not only to eight or nine different people so we can sit around in a very welcoming space, but the thing is we have to teach in welcoming spaces for larger groups, mm -hmm. for 70, 200 mm -hmm. people. So how can we redesign the university so it can be welcoming for for the most people possible, for the more people possible. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a it's it's a it's a big challenge because, well, this week I was in LS two twenty six two twenty six, and it's brand new and it's very experiential learning. But the thing is, the, the students were kind of tired because of the Halloween parties, and I was like, well, the the, the classroom is very interactive, but you're not interactive. So how can we <laughs> how can we manage to? <laughs> they, they didn't laugh. They didn't laugh. They didn't laugh. <laughs> yes. So it's more of a comment than a question, but yeah. we have to think about that because we don't I'm only we don't only teach to eight people. We yeah. mostly teach to 70 people. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with you. And I also think I've certainly been in lectures that uh, where I've heard fantastic lecture who's been totally spellbinding and there could have been 7,000 people listening and versus eight people. There's some amazing people who are highly skilled at delivering content around, around that. So I, I think we've got, uh, it is the challenge with the democratization of post-secondary education. I mean, for people who know me, I like to tell the story. My father was in engineering with 20 students and he's almost in every picture of the the, they had a, a yearbook at the University of Saskatchewan in 1956. Uh, where today, I mean, he would never imagine his daughter has a degree in women's studies and the dean of arts and science. What? How did that happen? So in these ways, this democratization of post-secondary education has meant different kinds of ways. We've then had to adjust the institution around to, you know, looking to... So how do we do that, right? How do we expand, make these bigger spaces for more people? Uh, the, the, the decisions that we've made around um, who's going to do that labor, right? The unionization of faculty, the way in which that is impacted and, and structured certain kinds of ways that we can interact in the classroom. So I, I agree with you. I, I, but I do think there are, uh, with the different kinds of things we've been doing online, 
the different ways we've been engaging uh, and using that technology has also been very powerful. I mean, right now we serve uh, all kinds of students uh, with our online courses who wouldn't necessarily have access to Queens through through that environment. So, yeah, I agree. So, yeah. I think this is just uh, very simply a um, a problem that can be addressed through interdisciplinary collaboration between you know someone working on um, architecture and design and pedagogy and <laughs> creativity. I, I I just I just think what would happen if we brought a few, a few people together to say, okay, here's the problem. We have mm -hmm. a group of 200 students. We mm -hmm. want to create a space that is actually not. A typical, you know, um, mm -hmm. proscenium sort of, <laughs> uh, you know, setup. How do we do that? Mm -hmm. What do we? How do we create that space? I, I don't actually think this is. I think the problem is um, within the university to uh, sort of put the resources behind that thinking, right? But I, I don't think it's an insurmountable problem. I and I and I think you probably could come up with something that was suitable for two hundred students. That you know, I don't even know what it would look like, but that that's. But we answer. have the expertise, right, <laughs> uh, within the university to actually address these questions. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I don't think it's an insurmountable challenge, and I don't mm -hmm. think it's. Um, I'm not saying you know you're constructing it as a binary, but I think it would be easy to think of it as mm -hmm. something that, that this is easy to think about for um, you know graduate seminars and impossible to think about for undergraduate mm -hmm. seminars. I want to I want to see that space for 200 students mm -hmm. uh, come into being. Mm -hmm. It'll be part of the speculative lab. <laughs> yeah. So uh, thanks, Barbara. She's she's invited me to this event and letting it be known that this was happening and this is great and thanks for as I've never met you but uh, awesome so uh, my name is Dalton uh, I'm a first year student uh, at Queens but I've had a four years of you know traveling and um, doing various things and doing various projects so so we've um, we've talked about space and place and uh, transmission of knowledge and some of the challenges that are happening like your students may not be engaged in class uh, but I, you know, my Queen's University experience up to this date, I've, I live rurally, so I come. Um, I come and commute, and I live on a farm property, very little people. And uh, it's just amazing that how people won't, will manage to find ways of not talking to each other. Um, <laughs> because they're, they've got their computers, they've got their cell phones. Um, and so it, it makes me want to do something. I want to talk to people. I want to engage with people. You know, I, I come out and I'm alone. I've got like my cats and my dog and my chickens. <laughs> you know, like it's not, it's not as exciting as, that, as having these conversations where we can learn things and share ideas. So um, in my last four years, I did a lot of work with my brother, um, playing a lot of music, and um, we uh, developed kind of a sharing methodology for teaching. Um, and it was a music program, and so we we'd all get in a circle, and um, we'd um, you know do rhythmic exercises. Um, and this was first developed because uh, we would go to communities where there's people who couldn't share. They literally too much trauma, you know, looking down. And so um, we we wanted to get get to know everyone's name. Um, so we'd go around the circle. It'd take 45 minutes, and so this is like. This is not working. So we, we decided to put everything into rhythm. And so we got to the point where it'd go, hello. And then everybody would go, 
Hello. 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 So we got this kind of communication going on back and forth, and it became very physical. And so we managed to get through uh, the namings of circles, uh, people saying, going, hello, my name is Danton. And then going through these, these people, like, and then all of a sudden, we all knew each other's names. And so one thing, like, we're in this hall, but we're, we're not, there's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of, like, tables and things like that. We, we, our spaces were designed without tables and chairs. We had no chairs or anything in our classroom. Uh, and the space had to be prepared with the intention that we would be learning. So, you know, students, we got students to line up outside the classroom and like, this is the time. The space is ready for you to learn. You know, come in with that thought. And so, uh, like I, I'm learning Mohawk and uh, I'm taking geography and I live right next to the traditional territory of Tainanaga. So it's kind of relevant. And, um, the geology, it, I've taken geology too and that they, they're, all, they're all, you know, our environments are very much uh, create our you know, the way we live our lives. So uh, we have to take into fact the natural world. And that's really, really important for, you know, indigenous thought, let's say, uh, because, you know, it's, we, we maintain that thought that, you know, life, our, our sustenance uh, requires the planet to be healthy. So, um, yeah, I, I really appreciate the learning of languages. And I'm just going to end with, the, you know, uh, and just, let's all one make a circle because uh, if we do that in clean spaces um, we'll be able to have that interdisciplinary uh, talk that we want to have because right now it's just people aren't communicating or we're stuck so we need to get beyond that and find ways of you know and, and checking off you know are, are we are we being uh, true to the, the land and are, are we communicating in the style of that? So, yeah, anyways, thank you. Thanks. Thanks. And, yeah, it wasn't much of a question, but it's, it's, no. we, we talked about how, how some solutions, and, you know, my experience has been that, you know, we need to simplify, um, and we need to have um, differentiation between our spaces, because technology is good, but also simplicity has its place. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Danton. Mm-hmm. Thank you so thank much, Danton. And thank you again. I've got a, a couple of small tokens of our appreciation to give um, the, the both of you to thank you. You've been listening to a conversation in the Fireplace series at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. I'm Dr. Laura Cameron, professor in the Department of Geography and Planning. Music for the series is from the composition The Passion of Angels by Queen's composer Marian Mozetic. Thank you for listening. Please visit CFRC Radio at cfrc.ca to hear more talks in this series. Thank you.